As we turn to the the Lord and his word, let's ask together that his spirit would open our hearts and minds so that we can receive it and obey it. Let's pray together. Our great God and loving Heavenly Father, in the fullness of time you sent forth the Lord Jesus, your only Son, to forgive our sins through his precious blood. Now we pray that as we meditate on that great mystery and that great gift, as we open your word and read about it, as we study it, we pray that you would send forth now in these moments your precious Holy Spirit to stir up our hearts so that we might think great thoughts of Jesus, to stir up our affections that we might love him more, to stir up our wills so that we might be ready and willing to obey everything that he has commanded us. And so descend upon us in this place, Holy Spirit, and have your way with each of us and with all of us together as your people. Speak to us, Lord, for your children are here listening. We make our prayer together in Jesus' name. Amen. Our short scripture reading from the New Testament this morning comes towards the end of Matthew's Gospel chapter 26. This is found on page 996 of your red Bibles, 996, Matthew 26, 26 through 30. This takes place during the Passover meal, and this is, of course, where Jesus institutes the Lord's Supper. So let's hear God's word together. While they were eating, Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, take and eat, this is my body. Then he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, drink from it, all of you, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink from this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. When they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. And this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. In my study just across the street here. Um, I have things all over my walls. If you've been in there, you know that my office looks a little bit less like a professional office, a little more like perhaps a university student's dormitory, right? But not a very cool university student because I've got nerdy pastor things all over the wall. Uh, I've got pictures of some of my travels that remind me of those travels. Uh, pictures of a little colorful village in the south of South Korea that kind of stole my heart. Uh, pictures of the place where the North American and Eurasian tectonic plates meet and bump up against each other in Iceland. And that happens to be also the place where the world's oldest surviving parliament was founded in the year. AD 930. 
And then I've got the typical pastor type stuff hanging everywhere. I've got a National Geographic fold-out poster of the construction of Gaudi's famous Sagrada Familia in Barcelona. I've got now Chagall's Fraumünster, um, uh, what do they call them, the Malta Fenster up there, the stained glass windows. And then I've got, above my desk, I've got three versions of Da Vinci's The Last Supper. Two of them are given by IPC folk. One of them's really big. The other one is kind of smaller and framed. They're both not the, well, they're not the original, of course, because that's on a, a wall in a monastery in, or a convent in Milan, right? Um, but they're, also, they're black and white, and they're artistic renderings in a way, not the exact thing. But then shrunk down onto a tiny little postcard with Korean writing on it, I've got the real thing, right? Stuck on my wall here in Zurich with a little bit of sticky putty. And this painting is famous, and it's famous, of course, for a good reason. The action in this painting is really striking. Actually, there's an old joke based on this painting. Jesus and his 12 disciples walk into a restaurant, right? And they say, we'd like a table for 26, please. And the hostess looks at the group and says, but there's only 13 of you. And Peter says, we all want to sit on one side of the table. <laughs> Get it? Yeah. yeah. At this table in Da Vinci's Last Supper, there is commotion happening, right? The disciples are asking one another, well, which one of us is he talking about when he said that one of us is going to betray him? Is it me? Is it you? It's probably him. But then in the middle, there's Jesus, of course. And Jesus is, at the very same time, calm and contemplative. But you get the sense in Da Vinci's rendering that he's definitely thinking about what he's about to experience. And he's preparing, even as his disciples worry about who is going to betray him, he's preparing in the midst of the Last Supper to serve to his disciples what we might call the First Supper, the First Lord's Supper. He's going to say, as he did in verse 26 here, that this bread is his body and it's given for his followers. That this cup, verse 28, is the covenant in his blood. It's poured out for many, and it's poured out for the forgiveness of sins. As usual, we're going to ask ourselves just these three questions this morning. In this part of our creed, I believe in the forgiveness of sins. What is the creed teaching us to believe? Secondly, how do we live it? And lastly, do we believe it? What is it teaching? How do we live it? Do we believe it? So first, what is the creed asking us to believe? Believe in, the creed says, the forgiveness of sins. I've been a Christian for my whole life. I've known the church and the promises of God. And that's been a great blessing to me. But for a long time, I assumed that to be forgiven of our sins 
was the whole point of Christianity. And since I knew that Christianity was itself the meaning of life, I assumed, therefore, that to be forgiven of our sins was itself the meaning of life. But since being a child, I've, I've made a stunning discovery. The Westminster Shorter Catechism helped me with this, with its famous first question. It asks, what is the chief end of man? That's 17th century English for, what's the whole point of human existence? And the answer isn't to be forgiven of our sins. But the answer is actually to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. And in a way, this realization changed everything for me. Maybe it will change everything for you this morning. Because finally, I saw the forgiveness of sins for what it is. Not as the goal of our lives, but as the very gate into a new life. Not as the end, but as the means to get there. But in another way, a very important way, this realization changed nothing. Because after all, the forgiveness of sins is still not only essential, but absolutely central to everything we do. Think about it this way. The forgiveness of sins is central in the Christian message. God gave his only son so that through his life and death and resurrection, we might be, as the hymn beautifully says, ransomed, healed, restored, forgiven. The forgiveness of sins is central also in the church's worship. The major Protestant reformers all believed that we need to partake of the Lord's Supper at least once a week, they said, if not more often. And Catholic and Orthodox and Anglican traditions tend to agree with them. And in the Supper, as we read here, the forgiveness of sins is front and center. The forgiveness of sins is also central in the Christian life from day to day. What do we do as Christians? We confess our sins to God. When we wrong one another, we confess our sins to one another. And then we turn away from our sins. When others ask forgiveness of us, we forgive them in Jesus' name. When we ask forgiveness of others, we receive their forgiveness in Jesus' name. The forgiveness of sins. There's a question that for as long as people have been learning about the Christian faith, doubting the Christian faith, persevering in the Christian faith, there's been this one difficult question at the center of it, and that is this. If God is so good, all good in fact, if God is so powerful, all powerful in fact, then why would this good and all-powerful God allow all of us and the whole world to fall into sin and all of its consequences? And the answer to this question has pretty much always been, whether it satisfies us this morning or not, the same thing, and here it is. The reality is that we believe that God brought us through the experience of our sin and of his 
his forgiveness of our sin. Because God knew that this experience would allow us to better fulfill our human purposes, to glorify him and to enjoy him forever. Jesus is around the table in the upper room with his disciples. In John's gospel, this scene takes several chapters. And in chapter 17, Jesus, in front of his friends, starts praying to his father. And he says, Father, glorify your son that your son might glorify you. I want the world to know that you've loved me and that you have sent me because your love for me is not just for me, but for all that trust in you as well. And the point seems to be that we can better glorify and better enjoy God having sinned and then been forgiven of that sin than if none of us had ever sinned at all. And this means that for us, the forgiveness of sins is, in a sense, the basics, the ABCs of the Christian faith. It gets us started. It puts us into a right relationship with God. When God forgives us in Christ, it's then that our lives finally get going. And as Paul says, it's like being dead and then being brought back from the dead and living again, Ephesians 2, 5. So it's the ABCs. But there's another sense, isn't there, in which, and this is a glorious sense, in which the forgiveness of sins is not just the ABCs, but the A to Z, or the A to Z, as some people say around here, of the Christian life. And we never graduate and grow up from this truth, do we? We never get over the amazement of this grace. Not in this life, not 10,000 years into glory itself. And here's the marvelous thing. We never stop, not here or in the life to come, glorifying and enjoying God as we live our lives fueled by the energy and the resurrection power of this forgiveness of our sins. The forgiveness of sins gets at us and gets into us and then makes its way out of us. The forgiveness of sins makes our hearts always softer. It makes our determination to obey Jesus always more firm. It makes our love for one another always more and more sincere. It makes our knees always bow down with more reverence. It makes us lift up our hands and our hearts higher and higher, always more each day. It turns our lives into living sacrifices. It makes what we do with our bodies a spiritual act of worship. And so the forgiveness of sins in Jesus Christ is not God's plan B, which he came up with after we ruined his plan A. Rather, the forgiveness of sins in Jesus Christ is God's glorious way of doing his plan A, of bringing people to a place where they love to glorify him and deeply enjoy him and will do it forever. 
And so we need to ask ourselves, secondly then, once it gets into us, how do we live the forgiveness of sins? Someone has said, actually lots of people have said, and I can't figure out who said it first, but they've said that a theology that cannot be sung, choir people, you'll like this, a theology that cannot be sung is not worth having. We've got to live the forgiveness of sins. We've got to sing it with our voices. We've got to sing it with our very lives. How do we do this? Well, we live the forgiveness of sins, first of all, by literally singing it. One of my professors in seminary pointed out to me that apart from happy birthday to you and maybe a couple of Christmas songs in each country and culture, Western culture, at least, has almost lost the practice of singing together in groups. We have professionals perform for us instead. But we rarely sing together. We don't sing together to entertain ourselves, to pass on stories, to share our hopes and our dreams through song. But the church, the church is the great exception to this trend. We do so much when we sing of the forgiveness of sins in particular. We encourage us, each other, Paul says in Ephesians, with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. And these songs don't just praise God, they do that. But sometimes they're even addressed to each other. Sometimes they're addressed to our own hearts. And when we sing, we teach and encourage each other about the truth of what we believe. And if someone who has not experienced the forgiveness of sins for themselves happens to be in church and hears and sees the joy in our song, Paul thinks that maybe our praise of Jesus for the forgiveness of our sins might just draw them to Jesus for the forgiveness of their sins for the first time. And that our song might do this maybe even better than handing someone a book would, or a sermon, or a personal testimony might. So we've got to sing it. But we've also got to sing it, don't we, with our very lives. Christian believers, if you really believe in the forgiveness of sins, this means that you should be the most ready-to-repent people on earth and the most ready to forgive people anywhere in creation. This means that the absolute minimum for living the Christian life is that we all must become really great confessors of our sin, repenters and forgivers. And you won't always be all of these things very well right at first. But you will, if you believe in the forgiveness of sins, you will get really good at these things. And what this means is that the people around you will start to say, what on earth has gotten into you? Nobody says I'm sorry so quickly and so sincerely as you do. Nobody 
absorbs the consequences of other people's hurtful attitudes and actions and words and turns and forgives them quite like you do. What is the reason for the hope that you so obviously have? And then you can turn to them and say, listen, there's no one who's been wrongly hurt like my Lord Jesus. There's nobody who has hurt my Lord Jesus like I have. But he has loved me and he has given himself for me. He has forgiven me. How can I not turn and forgive others? How can I not ask for forgiveness from others? Friends, the Christian life takes time to learn and time to grow in. That's why it's called, after all, the Christian life and not the Christian minute or hour or day or month or year. It takes your life long to grow in this grace. But grow in it, you must. Every bit of growth in grace that you must go through will start with your first and your second and third and fourth and all of your own experiences of the forgiveness of your sins. And every bit of progress that you make in the Christian life will be the fruit of your ongoing realization, I can't believe that he knows what I'm actually like and he still loves me and that he died in order to forgive me. Every time we celebrate the forgiveness of sins, whether it's in the Lord's Supper, or if it's in the act of forgiving or receiving the forgiveness of our neighbor, what's happening to us? Well, we are being transformed, aren't we, from one degree of glory to the next. Our minds are being renewed. Our very lives are being molded and conformed to the life of the one who was sinned against like no one else, but who forgave sin like no one else. And so the question comes home to each of our hearts, doesn't it? Do my words and my actions and my attitudes, day by day, year by year, decade after decade, do they sing more sweetly, more in tune, more skillfully and more joyfully this central dominant, powerful Christian melody. I believe in the forgiveness of sins. Can someone point to your life and say, you are not the same person that you were just a few years ago. You must have experienced the joy of full forgiveness more deeply because when I look at your life, it's spreading out more and more widely. So that's what it means that's what it means to live it. And the question for us is, do we believe it? Do you believe it? Someone once asked C.S. Lewis if he thought Christianity was true because it was beautiful. For Lewis, this was an interesting question. It might sound weird to you, but for him it was interesting. And here's why. For Lewis's entire adult life, long before he loved Jesus, he loved the ancient myths. He especially loved 
Norse mythology. In many of those myths, there's some sort of God who comes and who dies and then rises. And Lewis thought these were so cool. In fact, he thought they were so beautiful that they made him weep with joy as he read them and as he studied them. They were beautiful to him. But then something weird happened. As he experienced the Christianity around him, he was just unimpressed. He thought that Christian belief was ugly. He thought that Christian practice was ugly, especially the Lord's Supper, eating the body of Christ and drinking his blood. So weird. And then one day, his friend, J.R.R. Tolkien, took him on a little walk outside of Magdalen College in Oxford. And Tolkien kind of messed with him a little bit. He said, Jack, why do you weep over the beauty of all these old myths when you know that they're not really true? Why do you hate Christianity so much when right in the middle of Christianity is a dying and rising God? You like that stuff when it's in Norse mythology. And then he said to Lewis the thing that helped him to come to embrace Jesus. Tolkien looked at Lewis and said, what if you look at Christianity like this? It's a myth like all those other myths that you love and you think are so beautiful except that it actually came true in history. It really happened. And at the center of this true story is the beauty of a God who gives himself to broken and wicked people that they might be forgiven and renewed. And because of this, Lewis finally realized that Jesus giving himself body and blood, his life for his enemies was the most beautiful thing in all of the world. Beautiful especially because it's a big yes in the middle of human history to history's most important and troubling question. Can I be truly known and still truly loved? And for Lewis, finally, Christianity was not true because it was beautiful but rather he came to see it as supremely beautiful, way more beautiful than any other story, precisely because it came true in real life. And he believed, therefore, in the forgiveness of sins. What about you? Do you believe in the forgiveness of sins? Gracious Heavenly Father, we ask that as your word resonates in our hearts, as we enact what we've read this morning at the Lord's table, that you would come into this place and capture our hearts and our loves and our imaginations afresh. Help those of us who have doubted, those of us who have not yet believed to trust in this most beautiful, most true thing that happened the forgiveness of our sins in Jesus. Help those of us that are discouraged, that have believed this all of our lives and still struggle to believe it afresh and be refreshed this morning. And help us, we pray, to more 
and more glorify you and enjoy you now and forever because we have embraced the forgiveness of our sins in Jesus. Do this in our midst today, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.